Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hello and welcome to Government versus the Robots, the fortnightly podcast that takes a look at how technology will influence politics in the future. This week we're looking at blockchain and Bitcoin. Should we be worried about the environmental impact of Bitcoin? Could blockchain improve the quality of free and fair elections around the world? And will the Bank of England ever produce its own cryptocurrency? I'm going to be discussing all of this and more with Rianne Lewis. Rianne is a former journalist turned programmer. She founded her own cryptocurrency tracker and began the London Women in Bitcoin network. Rianne, to start off, do you want to introduce yourself to everybody? Hi, I'm Rianne Lewis. I'm a software engineer um, and I also do about a zillion other things, most of them related to blockchain technology and cryptocurrency. So as well as running a cryptocurrency portfolio tracker, um, I do consultancy in the area of blockchain tech um, and write a lot about the potential implications of this amazing new technology. And can you tell me the first time you heard about blockchain? Um Okay, so it was in the context of cryptocurrency, really, uh, probably around about shortly after um, Bitcoin was launched, probably 2010, 2011. Um, but going back some decades from that, from this, um, I first heard about the idea of digital cash when um, I was at university back in the 80s. Um, and I remember thinking, wow, what an amazing idea. But because the world Wide Web didn't exist then. Um, I tucked it away at the back of my mind as something that would happen, um, but hadn't happened yet, or um, the technology wasn't and infrastructure wasn't available to support it. So then, when I heard about um, Bitcoin, I was instantly fascinated, made the connection, uh, started reading everything I could about um, how it worked, and so on. And then in 2013, I started trading other cryptocurrencies, built myself a little tool to track the balances of what I owned. And it was about that time that people were really starting to talk about the other applications other than financial. Um, So I became really interested in this, learned a bit about smart contracts. um, And since then, I've been kind of living, eating, breathing, um, everything crypto and blockchain. And was that kind of interest developed whilst you were working as a journalist? Uh, No, I stopped being a journalist. Um, Well, probably it was shortly after. I was a journalist for about 20 years, but I'd always um, programmed as a hobby, um, building websites, building web apps and so on. And then um, I decided to take the plunge and become a full-time software engineer, um, which I am now. I kind of prefer writing code to writing words. So I guess I used to write words as as a job and code as a hobby. Now it's kind of the other way around I prefer it this way around I think 
That strikes me as quite interesting. So a lot of people tend to be either wordy or numbersy, and maybe I'm being unnecessarily binary about it. But were, were you? Had you always had a kind of keen maths and language interest? Uh, yeah, I guess so because I did a BSc, and maths was quite a um, chunky component of that BSc in um, economics and economic history. So um, I've always been drawn to that kind of analytical, mathematical kind of thing, and that's why when the internet came along, I was instantly motivated to start learning how to build websites and that. So that kind of eased a transition into digital journalism because essentially I was probably one of the tiny handful of journalists back in the 90s who could build an HTML page as well as write a story and write a headline. Um, And that was how I sort of transitioned gradually into digital journalism um, and then eventually back into the kind of more uh, mathematical numbersy kind of thing that I started out with. I suppose in a way the real surprise was I went from a BSc to journalism rather than the fact that I've ended up as an engineer. (laughs) And what do you find most, what's the most satisfying thing about programming or coding for you? Um, The ability to solve problems. Um, It just feels very, to begin with, if you enjoy it, the day can absolutely fly by. Since I swapped jobs, I have not had a single day where I've had to clock watch, which is absolutely amazing. It's, for example, if you really like crossword puzzles and somebody's paying you to do crossword puzzles all day. So that's kind of awesome. But um, one of the reasons I really enjoy it is, uh, this is somebody else's quote, so apologies to whoever I stole this from. Um, It gives you this ability to see what's missing in your world and build it and I just love the fact that if I need something to do something for example I want to pull information from a whole load of websites that want to manipulate that data for some reason completely unrelated to um, doing it for its own sake say I want to write a story about something you know you can go off and write a script that does it and other helpful people have written libraries that you can use to do that and it just makes being able to automate bits of your life like that is incredibly um, satisfying and the whole thing with the crypto portfolio tracker um, countmycrypto.com which was kind of my entrance into this whole world as it were I wrote to solve a real life problem I was having which was that I had different balances of cryptocurrency on a whole load of different exchanges and wallets and because the prices were so volatile I never knew what I had at any given time so I just wrote a script to help myself and then that became a web app that other people started using so it's an amazingly enjoyable and kind of productive life and just before we get on to doing the definitions and talking a little bit about what's bitcoin versus what's blockchain and so on which i think some listeners will be familiar with and others will be less familiar with um you run uh, is it london women in bitcoin Network. Yes, yes, definitely London Women in Bitcoin, not London Women in Blockchain, which is actually another meetup group started by a lovely lady called Linda, who I know, and I think she does an amazing job. We kind of overlap in some areas, but London Women in Bitcoin has been going since 2014. Um, I started it after going along to a series of meetups that a friend of mine in Berlin organised, um, Berlin Bitcoin Medchenabend, which translates as um, Bitcoin 
and Girls Night Out, which we had such a great time that when I came back to London, um, a friend and I decided that we were going to start our own group in London. And gradually it kind of changed from um, a handful of us sitting around a bar in Kingsland Road, um, which was at the time one of the only bars that accepted Bitcoin in London, to now we're based at Skills Matter and we try to have interesting talks, um, mainly Bitcoin and crypto related, but also around some other applications of blockchain technology. And why why was it important to you to get that started? It was kind of more important at the time than I think it is now, potentially, um, because at that time there were very few other women involved in um, crypto and blockchain. And it was just a way of getting the few of us who were there kind of together and um, chatting and socialising. It's kind of different these days because um, as the different applications have kind of broadened out because you have to remember that finance as well as technology tends to be quite a male area. Um, as the application of the technologies moved into different areas, now um, there is more of a gender balance. Um, so what our group does is we don't actually exclude men. We sort of operate on the uh, Girl Geeks Meetup principle where um, we men can come along if they're interested in the talks, but we try to get them to bring daughters best female friend, significant other, um, grandmother, daughter, anyone um, in their lives who they think could be interested. The, the whole thing is, I don't want other women to miss out on this technology. And I think in a way, the um, all the press that is uh, very prevalent about, oh, it's all the bros, it's such a male area, it's really unfriendly. That's actually really not true. I've never had a single negative experience. But that somehow seems to be all the stuff that gets out there so it's more like I think the group is important and other groups like it because they show other women that yes there are plenty of women involved in this and actually it's really a positive thing and nothing to be put off by. And how much do you think the number of women involved in developing the applications and use of the technology will shape the eventual effect of the technology on society? Um, it's a really difficult question because you could ask that about um, technology in general. I think um, generally it can be an issue when people develop things who are a particular type of person and they can't envisage other uses people might have for the technology. For example, you get a lot of Silicon Valley startups that are focused around solving problems that um, 20-something guys have because that's their only experience of having these problems. Um, I think it's... It will change and evolve over time, but I don't think you necessarily have to be hands-on programming the tech to make a difference. If you're involved in specification, design, whole load of other areas, you can make a difference in building the things that people want. I think um, the one thing to remember as well, technology itself is neutral. Technology is really neutral. It's how you use that technology that matters. So before we go any further, on definitions... Um, let's talk a bit about what's Bitcoin and what's blockchain. So I understand and have been familiar with the term blockchain for a few years now as a distributed ledger technology. I understand that it stores a kind of incorruptible record on a multiple number of computers. And yet I feel like there's something I don't understand. <laughs> so can you can you give me your best shot at the kind of layman's 
description not of what the technology is but perhaps what the, te- the implications of the, the technology could be as well. Um, I always give real life examples with this but just a little digression before we start it's really interesting that in the Bitcoin white paper um, there is no mention of blockchain at all. It's a description of the technology which came later um, based on its structure, which I think is quite interesting. But to explain um, blockchain technology to a lay audience, I think the easiest way to describe it um, and why it's useful is by example. So say, for example, you have um, a little village bowl society or, or somebody who's collecting the tea money at work. Actually, perhaps the tea money at work is a bad example, but say a social group and the treasurer um, keeps everybody's records on an Excel spreadsheet on his laptop at home or her laptop. Um, you have to really trust that person. And in the past, perhaps this was doable. You know, you have whole societies like um, the island of Yap in Micronesia that um, operates with having just giant stones and they have a written uh, a, a, a verbal record of who owns which bit of which stone but once you get beyond quite small groups of people that becomes untenable so you've got Joe Bloggs the treasurer with the Excel spreadsheet now you think about how more secure that would be if everyone in the village who's a member of the society had um, a Google spreadsheet where they could all see what was coming in and going out obviously Google is not decentralised the spreadsheet lives in one place. So it's not an exact parallel, but it shows the benefits of something that um, is shared, where the knowledge base is shared between people. And the extra bit of technology that blockchains bolt on is the ability to link changes that are made to this shared ledger right back to the start of the ledger. So now imagine that you've all got access to a Google spreadsheet and you can all see the entire history history of the spreadsheet. So someone in the village decides to write in that they contributed three times as much that week. Um, But then it's only their record that will say that because everyone else will look at the thing and think, oh, that's not quite right. I bet they didn't. Let's go back and check. And then they'll see that that person introduced that change. And it's the consensus of the majority that brings the ledger this kind of trust and immutability. And how does blockchain relate to Bitcoin? Um, Blockchain is the technology that allows Bitcoin to exist. So if you think of Bitcoin as the first use case for blockchain technology, that's probably uh, the best way to look at it. The um, shared ledger technology can allow people to do lots of things, but the transfer of value in a way that means the transactions are trustworthy is probably the biggest problem that needed to be solved and solved. And Bitcoin has solved that problem. And at the moment, as a I think there's a, I can't remember whose curve it is, but there is a reasonably well understood curve of hype where everybody gets incredibly excited about an idea and then enters the trough of disillusionment. Yeah, the Gartner hype you, cycle, yeah. And in, in the hype cycle, um, is it fair to say that we're, we're entering or in the trough of disillusionment on Bitcoin and blockchain at the moment? 
probably not so much with Bitcoin, but with um, with blockchain tech, there's now um, people are being more realistic about it. People um, use this parallel that we're um, if you equate uh, this technology to the growth of the Internet, because actually I do believe it's as tr- transformative that we're somewhere around um, probably not 1995 anymore, more like 1996, 97. And for anyone who was around in the early days of the internet and you had all these amazing kind of futurists talking about a future where we would inhabit virtual worlds and um, then people in the real world were looking at Usenet groups which were just basically text and saying well we haven't even got pictures you know we um, when are we going to get pictures when are we going to get videos and then start talking about virtual worlds um, the problem is that this is a very nascent technology so getting it to work for lots of different types of application is something that's going to take development work, which is happening really quickly. But um, again, um, along with Gartner's hype cycle, there's this maxim that we tend to overestimate the short-term impact of things and underestimate the long-term impact of them. And I think it's definitely this, that people will um, look at the reality on the ground of what public blockchain tech can do at the moment and think this is hopeless this is just a slow database it's not solving any problems at all go away become very disillusioned with it and then not realize that in looking out maybe 10 20 years that uh, it will have this or it could have this amazing transformative effect and i've seen that you've written about um how much you enjoy that light bulb moment when people understand sort of understand the potential implications of this technology um, what was your light bulb moment? I think the first time I made a payment with Bitcoin and of course for those of us who were paying for things with Bitcoin back in 2013 it's always a slightly depressing moment when you realise that that coffee you bought probably could have bought like a really really slap up dinner or something like that but I wouldn't swap those moments for the world um, because when you send money across across the world to somebody that you don't know, that you don't need to know their bank details, you don't know who this person is, but you can transfer value and transact with them without um, having to go through a bank or something. There's no substitute really uh, for that light bulb moment for actually using the technology and making a transaction. I think that's when it really hits home. And what's your, in, in, in your understanding what do you think are the potential implications of this technology for society in say a a decade or so's time um i think there are both good and bad implications um it offers people the chance to develop and use tools which will allow them to be a lot more self-reliant and which can really promote cultures of localism and self-sufficiency. But at the same time, the fact that these um, giant databases are immutable and um, may or may not be public does also give rise to lots of ethical questions about who has this data, who's using it and why. Um, it really bothers me this idea that people are rushing to make data immutable in the public domain and uh, to be possibly used by large organisations, to be used by governments without fully thinking through the implications of this, particularly with things like healthcare and things like criminal records because I 
think you also have to be careful to make the distinction between private shared ledger technology and public blockchains like Bitcoin or Ethereum, where the data is potentially accessible by everybody. Um, Personally, I think the public blockchains are where the true power lies, because if you want to limit access to these data structures to one company or a group of companies, it's not transformative in the same way as having technology out there and giving people people their own data back. You see, it's the idea of people being in charge of their own data, I think, that is the most compelling part of this. But then if you're not going to do this, if you're just going to use it as a way of storing people's data for them in a kind of immutable way and then um, doing potentially terrible things with that data, then it's quite harmful. And we've talked a fair bit about data on this podcast in the past. There's an episode called The Next Big Data Thing with a lady called Claire Melamed, where she talks about uses of big data. And I'm interested to know whether there's a way of turning our personal data into a kind of publicly owned force for good. So can we pool data to solve shared collective problems rather than necessarily to empower businesses to sell us stuff in a more targeted way? But there's so much in what you've just said that I think it's worth jumping off into so the the essence of this podcast is about trying to think about how technology will influence politics in the future and you've just talked about some of the potential for this technology to influence kind of an increase in localism and thinking about things in a smaller way can you give maybe some practical examples of how um, it might be possible for people to to, to localise decision making or take back some power from what's currently centralised. Okay, I've got a great example actually um, based on um, a project which some people I know are working on. In Kenya and East Africa, well in fact all over the world, but Ken- well, I'll use Kenya as the example, you have these local savings circles which are a big part of the informal economy in lots of different countries. And it's not even necessarily for people who can't get bank accounts people use them as a supplement to bank accounts and often they're easier to use and for people who are not sure how saving circles work they have different names in different countries but in Kenya they're called charmers and uh, the idea is that you go along each week you save into um, a collective savings account and then um, you usually get recommended in by people who know you and then after a certain number of weeks, months, years you can take out a loan from the collective funds that are there. And these are used very successfully in places like Kenya. And people use the money to start businesses and um, they're able to transact with each other in a way that is much easier than transacting with the banks because the banks are generally only interested in customers who are going to make them a lot of money. So even if people have a current account, um, they might choose to borrow money through the charmer because it's just easier and better. And the default rate in these groups is incredibly low because everybody knows each other so there's peer pressure and if you recommend somebody in you're effectively responsible for their debt so they've been running for centuries so um, the downside of them at the moment is that a lot of the paperwork is is paper based it's literally table banking where people enter accounts into a book or for some of the larger charmers they will pay a service company to do that with them so this company Charmapesa is developing developing a phone app 
which will allow Chalmers to do their record keeping. And it's not quite blockchain technology. It's what it's what's called a light chain, so that the records for the Chalmer are stored on each Chalmer member's phone, so that they can all see what's been paid in. And it's a way of automating it and providing people with the tools to run their own small banking systems. And this isn't kind of introducing new technology to people. Um, in lots of ways, I think um, we in the West could learn a lot of lessons from these informal savings circles because um, it means that people just aren't beholden to banks and big corporations in the same way. So if people, that's giving one example of how technology can give people the tools to empower themselves at local level. Um, in terms of people taking charge of their own data, I've been talking a lot to um, some different startups working in the healthcare industry and they um, a couple of them are looking at examples of people being having their own medical data and instead of it being scooped up by big pharma choosing where you want to share your data possibly being incentivized um, and making money out of your own data um, this was particularly interesting to me because like lots of people I had my DNA sequenced by um, 23andMe quite recently so I paid a hundred dollars for that privilege because I was interested in finding out um, stuff about my ancestry and various health things but the amount that uh, 23andMe which is obviously owned by Alphabet um, or Google um, will make out of this is many multiples more so I'm paying for something that's making them money in future if you could contribute some of your medical data, some of your genetic data to things that you care about or things where you can make money out of it. Um, it's not quite localism, but it's an example of how you can, how these, this technology could allow you to benefit directly from having a decentralised copy of your own data in future. It does definitely feel like there should be uh, more rewarding ways of using one's personal data than simply having access to Facebook. So, Hopefully they'll continue to, to, to grow and think about that. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to PrettyLitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Uh, 
I am always never far from hearing about how blockchain and Bitcoin can cut out third parties. And one of the conversations we frequently return to is about the impact of technology on jobs in the future. Um, and I find myself wondering in the context of, of blockchain in particular, the kind of third parties that seem to be brought up as ones that can be cut out. So banks, um, it might be insurance people. It's, they're all people that it doesn't feel like they're doing a bad job as it stands so are we looking to cut if i th- or even if i think about the kind of the treasurer of a local society maybe in some cases there's been a bit of scandal but largely things seem to be happening just fine so do we need to cut out all these middlemen that we're looking to potentially cut out it's a very good question um but i just wanted to make the point that things work fine until they don't work fine and it's quite interesting that some of the countries where bitcoin is quite heavily used are countries where there has been some kind of systemic collapse of the banking system and if you look at examples like um the recent tsb meltdown where a lot of people are still significantly out of pocket as i said things work well until they don't work well and it's quite possible that people will want to use systems like this in parallel with existing systems Um, but also we in the west can be very complacent because we have this level of infrastructure which we take for granted lots of people don't have this and there's the other thing that um, as I said things work well till they don't work well and um, we can see really that banks are starting to focus more on higher net worth customers for example for a while I lived in Poole and while this has changed there was a local bank I think it was I don't want to mention which one it was in case I get it wrong but it was in it was the branch that was nearest to Sandbank and you could only go into that branch if you um, if you were worth over a certain amount of money and they banned poor people from going into their bank and there was a big local fuss about it and I think eventually it got overturned but you can see now that bank branches are disappearing in poorer towns so we talk a lot about a lot of well-meaning people in NGOs talk about um, banking the unbanked well maybe we shouldn't think so much about that but more about giving people all alternatives because the other thing is that if you live in an anglophone country you forget that in the rest of the world they're not quite as addicted to debt as we are it's a very interesting thing um i spend a lot of time big chunk of the year in germany and germans just don't use credit cards in the same way as we do if you go in and uh, in fact a lot of germans don't have credit cards at all they have debit cards so um and using your credit card for groceries just isn't something you do and they have a much lower percentage of people with mortgages and car loans because they haven't had debt normalized in the same way go to a lot of other countries this is also true um I read some shocking statistic recently where it was a survey that was done um, that revealed that only 13%, 1-3% of people who had car loans knew to the nearest £1,000 how much they had remaining to pay on their car loan because we just get used to thinking of that costs me X amount per 
per week or per month. We don't actually think about we're borrowing money, paying a big chunk of interest and paying it back. So while you say the system seems to be working well, it is, but at a price. And I think because we get used to the convenience, it's like you said before with Facebook. Um, I don't have a Facebook account. My mother has a Facebook account. I don't have a Facebook account. And I get along absolutely fine without a Facebook account. Yet we have become conditioned to believe that it's absolutely necessary for participating in the modern economy. And which countries, for anybody listening, um, are some of those countries that are using Bitcoin in a more advanced way than perhaps we are, where they've suffered uh, particular problems with banking system? Uh, Russia, Argentina, Venezuela, um, to a certain extent Zimbabwe. It's quite sad because um, in Zimbabwe at the moment, there's actually a premium on the Bitcoin price uh, because people see it as being a more reliable store of value, obviously, than their local currency, which is hyperinflated. Same as in Venezuela. We get used to thinking of government-issued currencies as being sound money. But if you live in a country where there has been a currency collapse, like there was in Germany with the hyperinflation in the 1930s, then perhaps there's a cultural attitude that's different, which doesn't make you think. I mean, Britain's come close to it before. During the uh, period when we had to go to the IMF back in the 1970s, most people now have forgotten about this, but Britain's come close to it in the past. I'm not saying it will necessarily again, but certainly in Germany, it is embedded in people's cultural consciousness, and I think that makes them open to other ideas. Uh, For example, a good friend of mine took me to see this bridge in Prenzlauberg in Berlin, which is... which that its nickname is the Million Mark Bridge. And in the 1930s, uh, when inflation was so rapid that uh, people were having to take wheelbarrows of cash to buy a loaf of bread, it was originally scheduled to cost, I can't remember how many marks, but it gained in price every day until in the end it cost a million marks. And it's still called the Million Mark Bridge. And I think people are maybe aware of economics in a way that people um, we can be quite zombie-like in some some of these countries where everything's maybe been quite comfortable for a long time. I'm not an economist, but I, I think I'm right in saying that Bitcoin would still be affected by inflation. So if inflation is about purchasing power and purchasing power is dropping, that would still affect what people could purchase with Bitcoin if they owned it within a given economy. Is that right? not necessarily true at all. It might affect the price of Bitcoin. So it would mean, for example, that if a house or a loaf of bread was priced in Bitcoin, the Bitcoin price would be more likely to remain constant while the pound price went up. So if you owned a thousand pounds worth of Bitcoin and a thousand pounds in pounds, the pounds might only be worth after one month half, you might only be able to buy half a house or half a unit of something, whereas potentially you would be able to buy the same amount with Bitcoin because uh, the difference is in supply because um, governments and institutions can essentially print money, whereas there's a fixed supply of Bitcoin. And whilst I share your um, sensible 
uh, I don't know if warning is the right word, but sensible recognition that Britain is not uh, somehow immune from potential economic pitfalls and downfalls and, and, and tough times. I wanted to ask about currency and kind of how the state might consider using a currency like Bitcoin. So I know that the Bank of England and, and other um, central banks across Europe have been looking at using Bitcoin, but are starting to kind of shy away from that. Do you think that the state or a state will step into the cryptocurrency market in a clear way in the near future? I think it's inevitable. There are many governments now beginning to develop their own cryptocurrencies. In fact, uh, the Venezuela government has already done one called the Petro, but there are various other governments looking at it. And as long ago as three years ago, some researchers at UCL, which is actually my old university, which is very, very um, prominent in the whole Bitcoin and blockchain research space, some researchers there produced a white paper um, with the approval of the Bank of England about how they might go about a pilot. So I think we'll probably see it sooner than we think. It's not a um, decentralised cryptocurrency like Bitcoin in the sense that the different nodes, the different computers that run the shared ledger would be within the bank's premises or the bank's cloud environment or whatever. And so you wouldn't have a public blockchain which anyone could join the network and verify the transactions. It would be a government issued thing. But again, um, as with my warnings about possible slightly totalitarian uses of the data, the potential for this is actually quite um, alarming. It gets rid of a lot of the benefits of a public cryptocurrency while introducing a quite bothersome element of control. So we're already seeing this movement towards a cashless society. There are um, now towns in Sweden which are entirely cashless. We're seeing it here. In fact, I sometimes don't carry cash myself because it's just so easy to use contactless. Um, but if we had a blockchain-based or a distributed ledger-based national currency. The government could do all kinds of things with it, some of which might be useful, but some of which could be incredibly dangerous. So take, for example, Japan. Japan has had the problem of deflation where people are saving too much money and not spending money. This has been a problem of theirs for a really long time. So the Japanese government has tried lots and lots of different things over time like what's called helicopter money, giving people money in the hope that they will spend it and boost the economy. And this hasn't worked because um, in Japanese culture, it's very much a savings culture, not a spend culture. And also the atmosphere of um, a deflating economy has introduced so much worry and uncertainty that people want to save rather than spend. So you could see how um, a national government might use a blockchain-based currency as a um, macroeconomic tool in the sense that they could give people um, money to go out and spend when the economy was shrinking on the basis that they spent it within a small, a limited amount of time or else it would expire or that they only spent it on certain things. And it's this only spending on certain things which is the um, tool which could quite easily be used because smart contracts, which are a form of script that run on a blockchain, allow you to specify in absolutely granular detail how um, value can be transferred and what people can be allowed to 
to do with it. So at the moment, we have a lot of people complaining about people who are maybe on state benefits and spend money on things that are perhaps perceived to be undesirable, like, oh, I don't know, alcohol, cigarettes, betting or whatever. And you have people who just love to draw out examples of this and say, outrageous. Um, but obviously, if you had uh, benefits paid via smart contracts, um, via a government-issued cryptocurrency, governments could specify, um, oh, this could only be spent on porridge oats, lentils and water bills, um, which depending on your political viewpoint, you might see as desirable or undesirable. Um, but it can bring about a real tendency to control people in this way. And I think at this point, political ethical decisions have to be taken. I mean, obviously, it's great in some areas because you can see who's, spend, who's spending what on what in terms of data aggregation and making decisions then it's obviously a really good thing because you can't see what people are spending cash on. But from an individual and freedom point of view, it can be an incredibly dangerous path to go down. It does seem so. In, in an episode, recent episode on New Power with um, Henry Timms, we touched briefly on this kind of internal contradiction, if you like. Contradiction isn't the right word, but the right word currently escapes me. Whereby the more decentralised power is becoming, the nature of power changing. And they were talking a lot about power as a as a current that flows unpredictably through people rather than being a kind of ch- a channel that just flows top down. Actually, the easier it is to centralise power in one place. So if you're looking at the, the way that Google and Facebook and others are, the amount of power that they have, they've actually given people a lot more smaller freedoms and access to new information and new ways of doing things. But the grand total of that is that they, are, they still own the kind of sum of all of those tiny different actions. And that seems to me a tension in a lot of emerging technology that there is on one hand a huge amount of um, opening up and giving people way more freedom and and decentralization than ever before but ultimately when you trace it all the way back it's still very centralized and I don't really know what to do about that other than to flag it and say well we're going to need to manage it as a society is that fair do you think? I think that's absolutely fair it's the really scary dichotomy of possibilities that we have with technologies like blockchain tech and AI it's how we use them that is going to um, show whether they're beneficial or not and this I tend to be more of an anarchist uh, school of thought but even if you're not an anarchist you can look at countries like China where there's an incredible centralisation of power using these new technologies and see that it's potentially a really scary dystopian thing like the I don't I I didn't actually listen to that episode unfortunately but um, I don't know if Henry talked at all about the social credit system that they have in China now so in in China they've essentially gamified good behavior so you get social credit points for doing good things or things that the government think are good and demerit points if you do things that are bad and that could be something like a facial recognition camera showing that you've jaywalked three times within one month Um, and obviously it's used a lot to stop people saying negative things about the government on social media but not only your behavior the behavior of your friends and family is also included in your social score and they've linked it to things like being able to get a mortgage it's a fascinating thing to read about so they are using 
all these new technologies in a really dystopian way because um, they are effectively centralizing all this power. And I think it's something that people really have to resist. And you've seen really successful examples of people fighting back against this centralization, like in India, for example, where Facebook were offering free internet to people if they went via Facebook. And um, a group of very committed and admirable individuals in India fought back and started a really successful campaign against these adverts and against this um, this sort of power grab by Facebook and it worked and they weren't allowed to do this so I just think we have to be continually conscious of the need not to trade convenience for giving away our power because as, as we spoke about before decentralization and the tools of it including blockchain tech allow us to allow decentralization of all kinds of different things but if we just allow them to be used in a centralized way we're not just missing the potential of it we're going down a very dangerous path indeed especially with the media because I don't know if you saw recently this proposal by I think it was the French government to only permit certain types of news to fight state to fight what they call as fake news and people in a recent survey in Britain a small majority majority of people agreed that it was right that governments should be able to ban fake news. Uh, obviously, this is completely alarming because who decides what's fake news and what isn't? Yes, decentralisation brings a lot of challenges like people having to take responsibility for themselves to a certain extent and make their own minds up about what's dangerous, what's damaging, what's useful and what isn't. But that has to be better than ceding our power to some kind of centralised authority that's going to use this type of tool for ill so is it not the case that inevitably power collects itself somewhere else there's a different reservoir of power in a kind of decentralized blockchain more blockchain led world where it's the people who regulate the blockchain or best understand the technology that are in the greatest positions of power um the good thing about I, I always resist using the term blockchain in a kind of monolithic way like that I prefer to either say blockchains or blockchain technology if I'm talking about the technology yes it does give a certain amount of power initially to those who develop the technology but I believe that the fundamentals of how the technology works from a user point of view are not insurmountable for somebody of um, average intelligence. And to take an example that is directly political I know that um, blockchain is talked about as being something which could transform elections and try and ensure that elections are uh, fairer uh, and freer and I know uh, the recent elections in Sierra Leone there was some talk of applications of blockchain technology although how successful that ended up being in the end I'm not sure is our elections somewhere that you can see a potential for application of blockchain technology I do think so um, especially as they are already being used in a commercial sense for example for um, shareholder voting Nasdaq um, had a pilot which worked really well I'm not sure whether um, it has gone on yet to be a fully fledged scheme but um, the idea is that you register your vote and while your vote is not linked to you it is immutable so you have had these disasters before with electronic voting machines potentially being hacked with paper 
paper ballots being spoilt. So in theory, it could provide an immutable way of storing voting results. But I'd really like to caveat that around um, the way that the, the type of blockchain that's used and the way it's programmed is all to do with this because obviously it's not going to be very helpful in an election where somehow the way you voted becomes tied to your identity because then that becomes a force for evil. So it's as I said before, technology is neutral. It's how people use it that matters. And the architecture of these potential new voting systems needs to be considered at the most detailed level rather than people just saying, oh, yes, blockchain tech's a good idea or a bad idea. It's how it's implemented that is the key because you really don't want to vote in a, a way where your data, where your personal data can be linked to it in any way, for example. So it's, it is still plausible that a corrupt government would implement a corrupt blockchain to achieve a corrupt result. Absolutely, because people are people and um, governments and any kind of collectivised power, there's always an incentive to try to retain that power, isn't there? And presumably that is the case where a profiteering business implements a profiteering blockchain to achieve an obscene profit within a particular system. So what, what I'm getting at is the architect of the use of technology can infuse that technology with a particular outcome that would negate some of the potential benefits we've talked about. Precisely, because at the end of the day, a blockchain is a data structure. It's not magic. And just like people can use databases, a normal old-fashioned SQL database for something completely evil and terrible, so you can use blockchain technology for that. You know, AI is being used for all kinds of dubious things already. And the thing is technology if if you're talking about ai the problem is that it learns from humans like with the microsoft racist chatbot on twitter it's like things like this can see the worst of humanity and reflect it back at us so when people talk about the ethics of blockchain technology the ethics are only as important as the ethics of the people who have devised the system that runs them And how concerned should we be about the environmental impact of uh, Bitcoin in particular, but other things that run on blockchain? I've read somewhere that the amount of energy being expended to mine Bitcoin at the moment is the equivalent to over a million transatlantic flights a year, which is slightly more, I think, uh, transatlantic flights than actually get taken. So should we be concerned about the potential green and environmental impacts of this technology? I thought that this was quite, obviously I read quite a lot about this and I thought that it was quite a strange out of context statistic because yes it's quite energy intensive but at the same time if you think about the amount of energy that's taken all over the world to keep the financial infrastructure in giant buildings in cities all over the world, bank branches, um, banking executives being flown backwards and forwards to conferences and meetings. The cost of a Bitcoin transaction in terms of pure energy is actually less than that of a fiat um, exchange of value for the same. It's just that because um, so you can think of the energy that the computers that validate the Bitcoin blockchain um, consuming as being instead of a fictional Bitcoin organisation having headquarters and giant skyscrapers all over the world and people who fly backwards and forwards. It's they don't ener- fly backwards and forwards a million times, though. 
No, but you think about the energy that it takes to keep um, a central bank, to keep bank headquarters with the lights on all night and people coming in by train or car, you know, hundreds of thousands and millions of people all over the world commuting to work in bank headquarters. I don't I don't have I don't have the numbers at my fingertips. I do I I was struck by how high the energy consumption was and I assume from what you've said that we would expect to see cryptocurrencies operating in parallel with fiat existing fiat mm. currencies for quite some time. And so whichever way you look at it if both consume quite a lot of energy that's two two large chunks of energy being consumed to maintain currency rather than one which clearly does have an environmental impact um so i I wonder if anybody is is thinking about either how to control the environmental impacts of cryptocurrency or, or or limit the amount of power needed to mine new currency because the more the, the more that is mined and the further you kind of go into the mine the greater the amount of energy needed um there are various other protocols other than proof of work which is the energy intensive um method of validating a cryptocurrency that you've described such as proof of stake essentially you use different systems for different things so proof of stake is not potentially as secure as proof of work although a lot of people will debate this and say that it can be made as secure but you use different blockchains for different things so if you equate for example bitcoin with gold as a indestructible source of value um, but then you might have other other protocols that run alongside in terms of other cryptocurrencies or other things that run on top of it. For example, the Lightning Network, which is a recent innovation with Bitcoin, um, validates off-chain transactions very quickly without needing the same amount of power because um, the main blockchain is only re-entered at certain points to validate kind of bunches of transactions from a trust channel that you have open. And this has all been developed within the last year. So along with energy consumption people talk about the scalability problems and how people solve these and the answer isn't necessarily expanding blockchains so that they have bigger blocks like the um, bitcoin cash fork of bitcoin it is thinking about new innovative ways to make payments like trust channels like lightning network and things like that Um, or you might decide if you have a blockchain for something else entirely to run it with a system like proof of work uh, proof of stake or proof of authority which are different protocols which aren't as energy intensive Um, as i said before if you don't look at blockchain as this huge monolithic thing but instead a choice of different technologies which are structured in different ways you use the one which is most suitable for your needs i'm conscious that we're nearly out of time so i've got a couple of just last quick questions i want to ask Um, there's the famous bitcoin pizza meal conversation and the different valuations on the cost of the pizza at different points over the last couple of years now whilst we're talking uh the bitcoin price is pretty low i think it's about six thousand dollars six seven hundred i think uh, about sort of six 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 seven last time i looked and it got up to over 20 at some point earlier this just year under. Was it? just under 20 um would you dare predict the price come the end of this year um People always ask that. Um, I recently went on some program where I said could be twenty 
5,000 or it could be 5,000. Where it ends the year is a really difficult question because it does continue to be volatile. The guy I was on with who I thought was more sceptical than me actually said 50,000 by the end of the year. But then we both qualified it by saying it could easily reach either of our chosen amounts during the year, but whether it ends the year at that is another guess. I think it has the potential to go a lot higher, but then there are plenty of people who argue that it could go lower. And my other question is to ask what of all the potential applications of blockchain technology or uses of Bitcoin is the one that feels within touching distance that could be the most transformative, the one that you're kind of most excited about that isn't here yet, but you're pretty confident is just around the corner? That's such a difficult question because the ones that are nearest to happening or which are happening are probably the slightly dullest but most useful. So um, I'm going to be extremely, I'll give you one boring example and one exciting example. Both are incredibly useful. Um, One of the areas where most progress has been made is in the area of supply chains. So big ship coming from China with a whole load of consumer goods coming to Europe can generate as much as two kilograms of paperwork and have people signing off papers here, there and everywhere. Uh, There has already been the first blockchain validated shipment across the world. And the idea of having a ledger that's open to customs authorities, countries, companies, all interested parties who can validate that this shipment exited the place it was supposed to exit, contained what it was supposed to contain and so on, um, has the possibility of just getting rid of so much friction and allowing things to get to their destination with um, a lot of ease. As far as the most exciting applications of it go, I actually think it's already here. I think um, that being able to pay people around the world in a anonymous or pseudonymous fashion with minimal fees is pretty revolutionary. Um, I think we'll see technologies arising around that that make it more accessible and more easy to understand, perhaps. Um, But I think it's that uh, William Gibson quote about the future being already here, just unevenly distributed. I think crypto economics is probably the most interesting thing in the world, at least it is to me. So I'm just really pleased to have had a chance to go on about it a bit and one last question is just to ask of the people that you work with who are working on cryptocurrency in particular what characteristics do you think that they they demonstrate that make you confident about the implications of this technology in the future apart from if you talk about people who are actually programming this stuff obviously it's just quite amazing to watch people doing this kind of thing but I think the whole thing with these people who have so far been pioneers in the space the most interesting and amazing quality is this curiosity this desire to learn to push forward to explore new boundaries I think that is if you have that curiosity and that willingness to learn the world's a kind of really scary place at the moment it's um, both exciting in a good way and exciting in a bad way but I can't help feeling that wanting to learn more about how the world around you works and seize some of these opportunities does make it a really exciting time. Rianne thank you very much for joining me I much appreciate it. Thank you. So that's all for this week. I hope you feel a bit better informed about blockchain and Bitcoin. We'll be back in two weeks' time, but for now, thanks as ever to Sky Redman for her help with the editing and production of this podcast. 
And if you've enjoyed the show or you think there's ways to improve it, you can drop us a note at govt underscore vs underscore robots on Twitter. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.